so I'm president of the Humane League, and today I'm going to be talking about something that is very near and dear to my heart and to the, the rest of the leadership at the Humane League, which is organizational culture. But before I get into that uh, in a little bit more of an intro to the organization, I'm just curious who here is either starting an organization soon or, or is leading an organization already? All right. And how many people in the room have a lot of, they may not run the organization, but maybe has a lot of say over the way things are done and the kind of culture the group has? Okay. And how many people don't fit really into either of those categories? Okay, good. So we got a mix. So before I begin, uh, I just want to say that the majority of this presentation is the work of my colleague, Andrea Gunn, who is my partner in running the Humane League. And while I think the culture was initially formed organically by a small group of us uh, as the organization was growing, um, Andrea is really the person who persuaded us uh, that it was very important to focus on culture and to measure and write down uh, how we were doing things. So uh, uh, the credit really goes to her uh, for any success we've had with our culture. I'm also standing in today for my colleague, Stephanie Frankel, who was invited to speak, and who is our culture and engagement specialist at the Humane League. So her email is up here. Uh, she's a really great person to contact if this issue is of particular interest to you or if you're looking to fill a role similar to hers uh, at your organization. If you're not familiar with our work, the Humane League's mission is to end the abuse of animals raised for food. And this means everything from influencing individuals to influencing major corporations to helping to pass laws, uh, anything we can do to reduce the abuse of animals. We have full-time staff in the U.S., in Mexico, in Japan, and in the U.K. We also organize the Open Wing Alliance to unite animal protection groups around the world to help chickens. My colleague Alexandria is presenting on their work directly next door, so now would be a good time to move over there. If that's more interesting to you, I won't be offended. Finally, we have a research division that may be of particular interest to EAs called Humane League Labs, which researches and measures different kinds of advocacy. Here's our report on U.S. egg production uh, and cage-free. So when I started at the Humane League, we were not a big international group doing all this stuff. Uh, we were just a few people. I was the first full-time paid employee at the organization. Here's a picture of our first retreat. We've got four employees, three board members, a few volunteers. One guy is just uh, someone's boyfriend. Um, and at that point, we were so small that we had virtually no formal systems or processes and certainly no defined culture or values or anything like this. And it was really fun, but it was also quite challenging and felt a little bit like flying by the seat of our pants. So as THL has grown to the 100 staff that it has today, we've put a lot of thought into developing structures for employees to be satisfied and productive and to sustain continued growth. And I feel strongly that our culture has played a very significant role in our success over the years. And while it developed organically, folks like Andrea and Steph have made it their personal mission to formalize and maintain this culture. So while we're not always uh, perfect, we're always trying to at least be improving. And I'd like to share with you what we've learned so far. And in particular, scaling and maintaining this culture presents many challenges over the years. And that's why it's so important to identify what positive elements of the culture you want to maintain and name them, train people in them, use them to find candidates in the interview process to make sure that they're a good uh, cultural fit, and also evaluate people's performance based on some of these cultural metrics. So I think everyone who joins the effective altruism movement cares very deeply about their cause. 
For folks who work with me in the animal movement, most of us are motivated by passion. And of course, when you follow your passion, you tend to work very hard, you often enjoy what you do. And for many of us, the job is obviously not just a paycheck, it's often more than even a career. For many of us, it's our life's work. It's a big part of our identity and who we are. Speaking from the animal movement, we're up against a very large and powerful problem. I think all of us in this room probably are. The number of animals, the degree to which they're suffering, is unfathomable. It's happening worldwide. And while we've made progress, we know we have a very long way to go. And this presents uh, a serious cultural hurdle that we must overcome. Because you can always be contacting more companies. You can always be joining another protest, doing more fundraising. You can even stock veg news kits in the stands uh, in the rain. Um, it's difficult to set boundaries around when activism stops, especially for employees who are remote, who have flexible hours, like many of us do. This is true no matter your cause area, I think. And when you're working for an altruistic purpose, time away from work can often feel like you're letting down the cause, like you're not moving the ball forward when you could be. And as a result, I think many of us constantly work too many hours and neglect our own well-being, thinking it's okay because the cause needs me more than I need an extra hour of sleep. And it can get even worse. Many advocates are also struggling to make ends meet financially because they're being underpaid. They don't want to be selfish and take money from the cause. They're experiencing a toxic work environment. They're facing compassion fatigue and realizing societal change is often slow and difficult and that there are setbacks. And eventually, they can't take it anymore or they burn out. It's a very real problem. The EA movement, the animal movement in particular, is very small as it is. We want to continue winning progress which means we can't risk losing advocates to burnout or job dissatisfaction or bad cultures. We need to keep growing. And that is where culture comes in. By fostering a healthy work culture and taking care of the people in our organizations, we can significantly reduce burnout. And we can make jobs more sustainable, among many other benefits. So in this talk, I'm going to share some of those benefits as well as the key elements of a healthy culture with examples from THL, along with some advice to put this into practice. First, let's define organizational culture. Culture is basically the way we do things here, how people behave, what happens when nobody is looking. Formal definition is the set of behaviors, values, artifacts, reward systems, and rituals that make up an organization. It's very broad, right? But the reality is culture touches every aspect of the organization. First and foremost, the employees. Some evidence suggests that healthy cultures have physically healthier employees, including lower blood pressure and lower levels of anxiety, but also employees have better attitudes and are more engaged in the work. Engaged managers and employees are much more likely to remain in an organization, leading directly to fewer hires from outside, which results in lower recruiting, hiring, training costs. It also results in higher and better productivity. Culture also impacts an organization's reputation which impacts the ability to hire top talent, win victories, obtain funding. So it's no surprise that it also impacts financial performance. Donors are more likely to give to a highly regarded and engaged workplace. And employees are more mindful of spending when they care about the place that they work. And finally, culture impacts your ability to achieve the bottom line. In healthy cultures, employees are more aligned and focused, as well as more nimble and able to tolerate some failure. Combine that with being more productive and financially stable, they're more likely to succeed and sustain over time. So culture impacts each of these areas, 
and each of these areas impact each other. Research at Harvard Business School found that effective culture can account for 20 to 30% of the difference in performance versus culturally unremarkable competitors. The bottom line for the Humane League ultimately is helping animals, right? Reducing their suffering. So creating a healthy culture means we can help more animals in both the short and long term. This logic applies to whatever good you're out there trying to do with your organization. For that reason, and also because we care a lot about all of your well-being, I believe culture is a priority that organizations should make a point to focus on. So what does a healthy culture look like? There's a ton of information out there, but Andrea has helpfully reduced it to three major categories. The first uh, that I'm going to walk through is respect. Employees are hired to do work, but first and foremost, like all of us, they are human beings. And building trust and treating people with respect and dignity is essential to a healthy work environment. It may sound like common sense. Most organizations are not knowingly disrespecting or degrading their employees. That said, there is inherent vulnerability in the employee and employment relationship and real power differentials. As leaders, and many of you are leaders in the room, as we saw, you may feel equal to your staff. You may feel like you're on the same level. But most employees, and especially new hires, will not feel the same way. And when an employee says yes to a project, to working late, to anything you ask of them, are they saying yes because they want to or because they think there are consequences in saying no? We need to think carefully about our behavior as leaders in particular and be very careful not to take advantage of our position. These underlying power dynamics are especially important to recognize with the many white male leaders within the EA world who manage women and non-binary employees and people of color. And in addition to these power dynamics, there are a number of other more subtle ways that respect and trust and dignity come up in the workplace. The first is regarding work-life balance. To create a sustainable culture and prevent burnout, we need to respect and encourage balance and allow people time to fully unplug. Critically, this again goes to all of you leaders, we must lead by example here. We must show that this is actually okay to do. The passion for activism is so ingrained in the animal movement and at THL that we often have to reiterate to our employees over and over again that we don't expect them to work overtime, that we want them to take time off. We encourage boundaries like disabling email or Slack notifications. And for us, it's an ongoing challenge, to be honest with you. This is something that we still haven't completely figured out. Bandwidth, of course, plays a major role. We're trying to do a lot. And at this point, we feel like continuing to talk about this topic is necessary at THL. So we have to discuss it quite a bit. The next is autonomy. Employees thrive on independence and a feeling of trust from their supervisors. Working remotely at THL makes autonomy a necessity. And it requires a great deal of trust in both directions. With our flexible schedules and variable work environments, we aim to focus on outcomes and guiding people to achieve them rather than managing daily or hourly tasks. It's really hard to give up control as your organization grows, especially as most of us have very strong feelings about the way that we do things and how things should be done. But micromanaging is one of the easiest ways to destroy trust and employee morale. I could give an entire presentation on delegation. We don't have time for that, so I'm going to show a resource to you at the end that I recommend. Another key comp component of respect is listening. People want to be listened to and taken seriously, regardless of their position. And they need to ultimately feel like they can respectfully disagree and be heard without fear of retaliation or punishment. There's value in giving employees a voice 
Not only does it increase buy-in for changes as your organization grows and new ideas, but it adds depth and diversity to the decision-making process, leading to better decisions. When THL was smaller, I could have one-on-one conversations with all of the activists working for us. As we've grown, though, this has become a lot more challenging. One way to manage this is giving an employees a voice uh, through staff committees, which are made up of individuals from varying departments and countries and tackling issues like diversity and inclusion or culture or innovation. We also utilize surveys. We survey staff frequently on topics as minor as, was this meeting a good use of our time, uh, to as large as employee satisfaction. And once again, I could give an entire presentation on survey design. Uh, but the key is to keep them short and infrequent to prevent fatigue. And more importantly, to acknowledge the feedback you receive. It's very important that you close the loop. So when we put out a big survey about employee satisfaction, let's say, we share the results with the employees. And importantly, Andrea and I put together a cover letter explaining how we're going to address the biggest concerns that came from that survey. So you need to show that you're not just soliciting feedback from people, but you're actually taking it into account. The last piece here is transparency. Everyone has a need to know what's going on, and most people want to know about things even if it doesn't directly affect them. For people in the room who are maybe heads of organizations or senior staff, you know all the background. You have all the context. You understand why important decisions have been made. And if you've been around for a while at your group, it can be very hard to intuitively remember what it's like to not have all that background information and context. So you must force yourself to provide the necessary context and information whenever possible. When people are uninformed, they will fill in the gaps on their own. And they might assume you're hiding something, even if you're not. Under-communicating can destroy trust. And I'm not saying you need to tell your team everything. But if there's a reason that something can't be shared, like it's a private HR uh, piece of information, you should make sure your staff understands why they aren't getting information. It's not a scandal. It's just how the law works. You can explain your policies. At THL, we used to share everything. All of our meeting notes were public, uh, and we had time to give context on everything that was happening, virtually every decision that we made. But as we grew, the oversharing became problematic. Uh, with so much information, people didn't have time to digest it. They didn't know where to start. Uh, so you end up in a, in a similar situation where people don't know what's going on. So now we make a point to share only highlights, uh, the relevant information. It's really difficult to find the balance here. It's something we're constantly tinkering with. So I don't have an easy solution. Uh, right now, we utilize team meetings. We have a monthly all-staff call. We have a weekly internal newsletter. These are the ways that we get this information across right now. The biggest challenge ultimately is time, both taking the time to put the info together as well as taking the time to read that information for employees. By next year, honestly, we'll probably be doing things a little bit differently. So there's many ways that uh, respect comes up in the workplace. Um, I could, again, give another presentation fully on this, but instead I'll move on. So the second main category I want to talk about is impact, and especially activists among all employees, want to feel that their job is having an impact, whether it's on the world, on the far future, on their personal development, whatever it is. So it's really on all of us to show our teams how their work ties into the big picture. We discuss this in our new hire orientation with everyone. We show how employee goals tie into department goals, which tie into the larger strategy of the overall organization. And this is especially important for employees where it may not be so intuitive, they're, they're not doing direct work. People who might be working in operations or editing videos for us or doing our taxes. 
Impact works in the other direction too. Employees want to feel that they're learning and that they're growing. And this is key to job satisfaction. And I have a strong impression that this is especially true for millennials, let alone the kind of overachieving types attracted to the EA world, right? The biggest challenge we face at THL regarding professional growth is that many of our staff want to move up in their career more quickly than we can possibly provide for them, even as the organization is growing. We continually work to set clear expectation and provide other opportunities for growth. This can look like providing outside training for books, seminars, conferences. Simply providing feedback and coaching is important. Feedback is something that's often forgotten or deferred until later. So at THL, we include prompts for giving feedback to make sure we don't avoid it or forget it. In each one of our check-in meetings, there's a section to fill out beforehand for both upward feedback to the manager and feedback to the employee. We also have annual performance reviews set up by our operations team, and we schedule project debriefs for each major initiative that we take on. In terms of outside training, when we had a small budget, we would do this at no cost by assigning books or TED Talks that we would all discuss in a group together. Uh, our committees hold sessions that we call Lunch and Learns, where we bring in interesting speakers to give a talk to the staff and do a Q&A. Now that we're larger, we have a software card called Grovo, which is a learning management system with like videos online. You can learn professional skills. The important thing to do is just whether you have a budget for it or not, make sure you do set aside some resources, even if it's just time, to engage with your employees and make sure that they're feeling like they're learning. So the final component of a healthy work culture is community. People thrive when they feel connected to their colleagues, when they're working alongside others toward a shared goal. I think all of us in this room can relate to that. And you can provide community by showing how each individual contributes to this larger mission, by encouraging teamwork and collaboration rather than competition, giving employees opportunities to get to know each other and their supervisors beyond day-to-day -day working together. One way we do this is by using video chat for all of our meetings so we can see each other's faces. We also start most of our meetings with icebreakers so we can learn a little bit about each other. We celebrate staff birthdays and anniversaries digitally on Slack, and we host fun initiatives. For example, we had a weekly video series where staff would film themselves teaching a skill to other employees, something unique that they know um, that's about five minutes long, and every week an employee would share one of these videos. We also make a, get, a point to get together in person whenever possible. Some of you may have been at our meetup last night with a number of our staff. We have an annual all-staff retreat. We have departmental retreats throughout the year. Because we're remote, we make a point to set aside money for people to travel and meet together in person. A lot of the negative impacts of a remote culture, um, you can remove them by just meeting a few times a year in person. When we ask our staff, most people say that it's the people in the community that makes the Humane League a good place to work, much more than our mission or even our effectiveness. That's what people really stick around for. We've worked hard to ensure that everyone can feel included, no matter who they are, whether they have different beliefs or interests than most of our staff, whether they're new to the movement or a senior activist, whether they're introverted or extroverted. And this is how we've tried to operate since the beginning. And the entire leadership team really try to model this, as well as our senior employees. And we think it's felt throughout the organization. Inclusivity is one of our core values. And we have things like uh, no inside joke rule at our retreats. We really try to make a point of our leadership to sit with new staff, to spend time with even the most junior employees, to make sure everyone can benefit from that kind of inclusive culture that we had when we were just a few friends getting started. The EA movement is full of really wonderful, generous, interesting people. 
So really, it's just about trying to build a culture where they can connect and bond deeply organically. Okay, so I've given you a lot of information about what a healthy culture entails, but how do you put this into practice? I don't have time to get into a ton of detail here, but most importantly, you need to make the time, and this is the hardest part. Culture is going to develop whether you focus on it or not. It's going to happen. Being intentional about it is the best way to ensure your organization ends up with the culture you want. If you're just building an organization now, define the culture that you want from the start. We all tend to work on what is urgent instead of what is important. But we as leaders tend to focus on things that are important but not necessarily urgent. These are things like culture, strategic planning, relationship building, all things we need to do but seldom get around to actually doing because they just don't feel as important. Many of you have probably read the book about the habits of highly effective people. It's a little corny, but I really like this quote. The key is not to prioritize what's on your schedule, but to schedule your priorities. So beyond setting aside the time to define what you want your culture to be, second most important is that healthy culture absolutely must be embraced by the entire organization and especially the leadership. If leaders don't model the desired behaviors, not just talk about them or say them, if they don't model them themselves, they will not be taken seriously. You absolutely have to get leadership on board first. With leadership on board, your culture should be communicated in a way that everyone can understand that simple, very clear examples of how you want people to act. And you should make sure to give public recognition and reward people who are modeling those behaviors in a very good way. Lastly, you need to regularly assess your culture and be flexible. As you make internal changes, get feedback to see how things are going, whether you need to make additional changes based on input from your staff. Unfortunately, you can't just set up a great culture and then leave it. You have to actively work on maintaining it. Culture adapts over time. Even if the organization isn't growing, people grow and change. The external world changes, new ways of working are constantly being introduced. As the outside world evolves, your internal practices should too. So to wrap up, the majority of the people in this room are likely in this work because you care about the world, you want to make a difference, you want to reduce suffering. And most people, I'm sure many of you, did not get into your cause area, did not become a passionate activist because you want to learn about how to set up a meeting agenda or how to run an annual review or to read Harvard Business Review. I know I certainly did not. But think about the things that you would be willing to do for the cause. Work endless hours, do undercover investigations, even put your reputation or your life at risk. Dedicate your lifetime to your purpose. You'd be willing to travel across the world to come to a conference, for example. Developing a great work culture is no different. And research shows that there may be no more critical source of success or failure than a company's culture. Healthy work cultures allow us to have a significantly greater impact over a much longer, sustained period of time. So investing time and energy on your culture is just as important, if not more important, than any short-term progress that you might be working on. If you'd like to learn more, I highly recommend attending a management course put on by the Management Center. Uh, they have a lot of courses in different U.S. cities, but they can also do in-house training, so that might be available internationally. Training costs between $400 and $600, which is extremely low for this kind of training and for the kind of quality that they offer. It's for a nonprofit, so it's discounted. If you can't attend the training course, though, 
I recommend their textbook, Managing to Change the World. It's really been a game changer for THL over the last few years. I know a lot of animal groups are using it now. You can get it on Amazon. Chapter two is all about delegation, uh, including an awesome delegation chart. It's a worksheet you can fill out. You can get it for free on their website. So it's that resource I was talking about. These other three books we've also found to be very helpful. Even if you've been a manager for a long time, I think you get a lot out of them. And please feel free to reach out to me, I'm going to be at office hour shortly, or to Andrea or Stephanie, whose email I shared. Uh, and yeah, I look forward to taking your questions. Thanks so much for your attention. What are some of the unique cultural challenges that EA organizations face? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, at these kind of events, I'm kind of like the animal guy in the room. But at animal events, I tend to be the EA guy in the room. Um, so I think within that, uh, that's given me some insight into the challenges. Because I think as a leader myself, that I have a tendency um, towards maybe measurability bias, let's call it, or just thinking of being very like results-oriented. I'm a campaigner. I just want to focus on what's going to create impact for animals. And I think um, the reason I give so much credit to Andrea for this is that I think she has much higher emotional intelligence than myself. <laughs> and uh, a much kind of like longer term view of the importance of culture. So I've really benefited by learning from her uh, the importance of these more intangible things that I think some EAs may be put off from because they don't seem like they're the goods, like they're not going to necessarily be in a charity evaluation about the impact you're having. Um, but it's more of a, a kind of a long-term benefit that you gain. So I would encourage people who might think about the world in the way I do uh, to be a little bit more open-minded uh, about the importance of good management and setting up culture, even though it doesn't, it's not an immediate lever you can pull for utility uh, like a campaign. Totally. Thank you. So another thing I'm wondering is, um, you know, it seems there are a lot of resources out there for building a healthy culture from the start. And I think that like this presentation is a great example of a way to think about doing that. But having spent several years working in the animal advocacy movement myself, one of the things that I've seen happen a lot is organizations start out with a healthy culture and then they get derailed. Things go off track. And I think that what we're lacking is a sort of manual for like, how do you get back to center? Like, how do you get back on track and fix some of these cultural problems once they have arisen out of something that maybe originally was like designed well? Yeah, I, I think unfortunately it's an extremely difficult project to drastically change a culture, which is why I am so strongly encourage people at the early stages to create a good foundation. Um, I'm not an expert in organizational culture change. There's certainly a lot of consultants out there who try. I think most often it fails, unfortunately. Um, and or often requires just like huge amounts of turnover. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there is a silver bullet. And I think the the examples from organizations that have uh, had a culture degrade are, are a good cautionary tale for those of us in the room who are considering how much to invest in this. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. It's definitely a challenging problem. Um, okay, so I have one last question, and this is specifically about the transparency part of your talk. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering um, if you've encountered some of the issues that I faced myself as a leader in organizations that are very similar to this, which is that it's very hard to strike a balance between being sufficiently transparent with your staff, but not being so transparent that the staff have a lot of access to information that they become entitled and then they want to be able to exert influence over decisions that maybe aren't appropriate for them to have influence over based on their sort of status in the organization. So I'm wondering 
if that's a balance that you have thoughts about. Yeah, definitely it's tricky. Um, I think the only way around it is having very clear uh, both like project management and decision-making protocols. So one system that we use at the Humane League um, is a chart with like all the kinds of decisions listed out. And then there's roles that people, you know, there's a million different kinds of charts like this. It doesn't really matter which one you use, but it's like this person is consulted on the decision. This person approves the decision. This is the final decision maker, uh, so on and so forth. And as long as that is transparent and it's very clear of like if we're going to give someone a raise or we're opening up a new position, it's like these are the people that decide, these are the people that approve. There's no question about it and everyone has access to that chart. Um, so, you know, there's always going to be tension between people wanting more control over what's happening, but uh, that's unavoidable. The best way to mitigate the risk there, I think, is just be transparent about what the process looks like. That's when people, I think, can become very paranoid when they don't understand why a decision is made um, and then they feel the need to try and exert more control. Great. That's a really specific and fantastic answer. Very helpful. Thank you. Um, okay, so Dave has office hours immediately following this. They're going to be in the Queen Vault room, so you can head there if you want to ask him further questions. And thank you so much for your presentation. Thank you.